0: Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia.
1: Animal liberation, animal
0: liberation, of species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves from the 3cr studios in melbourne and via podcast and thanks for sally for the previous show out of the pan all things pansexual issues uh make sure you catch up uh, with sally's next show every week at 12 p.m on sundays so that's out of the pan And sexual issues. So today we're really lucky to be chatting with Dr Liv Baker. Liv is a conservation behaviourist and an expert in wild animal welfare with research focusing on the role individual wild animals have in the health of their social groups and populations. Liv's work explores patterns of well-being and behaviour seen across the animal kingdom and involves a range of wild animals including elephants, cetaceans, primates, arachnids, rodents, and macropods, the whole suite, like you get in the whole kingdom, lots and lots of, um, the whole kingdom there. Uh, Liv teaches into the animal behavior and conservation program at Hunter College at the City University of New York in the US, and is also research director with, uh, I might pronounce this incorrectly, so Liv, let me know if I do, the Mahouts Elephant Foundation. Today, we're going to speak to Liz about conservation, rewilding, and the inner lives of animals and all the awesome work that they are working on. So, Liz, I just first off, thanks for joining us. Um, and I'd love to know what is a conservation behaviorist.
2: Great. Well, thank you, Adam, for um, uh, yeah, asking me. And it's wonderful to be here. Um, that's a good question, um, conservation behaviorist. It's funny. Um, at this, usually at the start of most of my the classes that I teach, I pose to the students, you know, because you'll do an introduction of yourself and you'll give some background about, you know, your academic path and so forth, and how you identify professionally. And mine is usually a bit of a mouthful. Um, and... And I asked the students, I'm like, I am very open to a different, um, title, a different description, one that's more pithy, more concise. Um, because nothing, it's hard to, to get that really concise, um, sort of moniker that some other disciplines, um, get maybe the more established ones. Um, and so usually what I... The way I do usually um, describe myself, how I usually describe myself, is as a conservation behaviorist, but also the audience, you know, maybe it, it varies a little bit um, based on the audience, but conservation behaviorist and also animal welfare scientist or um, someone who studies animal well being. Mm. I do prefer well being over welfare, and we can talk about that um, as well. Um, And so, but to your point of what is a conservation behaviorist, and I I think for a lot of people, they they actually think more of conservation psychology. So the human behavior behind um, uh, conservation efforts and practices and interventions. And um, while human behavior matters a lot (laughs) in many ways, um many aspects of human behavior what conservation behavior is is studying is the application of animal behavior theory concepts and principles in the sphere of conservation biology yeah so i'm really like i'm an animal behaviorist right i deal primarily with behavioral data um but it is in the sphere of conservation
0: yeah that's really interesting because you know it behavior behaviorist sort of work really requires that individuality that understanding or seeing the individuality in Mm -hmm. um in animals rather than say conservation which is often about populations or or species and you're bringing those two things sort of together i I, uh, there was an interesting paper of yours a couple of a couple of years ago that i was reading the other day that really talked about for conservation to be successful, things like um, relocations or translocations, you mm-hmm. need to know uh, the the basically the personalities or the traits of individuals. Otherwise, we're going to be doing lots of this work and there's going to be a whole bunch of individuals that just are not suited for the types of things that we're, we're um, trying to do through conservation. And right. we need to get out of that sort of thinking of conservation of, not understanding or not, not recognizing individuality. Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on, on that point?
2: Yeah. And I'll talk about that. So that aspect is very much from that sort of practical side, right? Mm -hmm. Even so it's that argument that even if you put aside ethical considerations, Mm -hmm. intrinsic value, which I don't think we should ever put aside, but even if you did, right there's just practical reasons, material reasons, for caring about and considering individual variation, right? Um, If you're you're interested in success of your conservation intervention, right, that matters. Um, I mean, it matters even across all, um, any type of animal-related research, Individual variation matters, um, but just speaking specifically about conservation, if you yeah, if you want a relocation, a reintroduction, translocation, those types of interventions to work, you know, paying attention to that variation is is vital, and it's you know not paying attention to it has really led to you know unsuccessful um, uh, attempts.
1: Yeah, and
2: and it matters too, you know, you know as conservation goes. You know, especially with relocations or translocations, those sorts of things, you're dealing with very few numbers, right? And so you you should care uh, about the, at the individual level, again, putting ethics aside just for those practical material reasons, because you're more likely to protect, save, and give those individuals a chance of making it through those very stressful events. Mm. Um, So we can, you know, so... I think, I think reason the ethical considerations are paramount, but it's also important. I think you know to talk about you know beyond that um, the importance the, the practical side of it that it should matter to the as a scientist as a researcher. You know, to ignore these things is actually ignoring how nature works, how how animals and species interact with their environment, um, and you know there 's been some movement towards understanding that i don 't see a ton of application implementation of it in in the field very much you know so most of the um, most of the most of that knowledge I would say really just you know is sitting still within the um, the literature and not and hasn 't gotten much to to practice
0: mm. yeah that it, 's interesting that you keep the the um, kept on mentioning ethics there as well, because I think the other really nice thing about your work is that you are considering these things within an ethical framework um, that does value individuals so you 're not only understanding individuals but you 're also asking what is the the intrinsic value of ind- individuals and what does that mean? Um, how we should interact and how we should conduct conservation with them. And I, I wonder, we're sort of getting into the heavy stuff really early, but I wonder, I wonder whether you think this, um, this lack of recognising individuals, even their behaviour within conservation, is also part of that, um, often that lack of recognising individuals' value, intrinsic value, and if people started recognizing people's uh, animals' intrinsic values individually, then they would also um, they would also see and recognize the value of individuals within conservation. You know, around the sociality of, of animals and the relationships they build and how that drives um, community community dynamics.
2: Sure. I mean, I'll just give you I'll I'll, I'll just talk very briefly about my personal trajectory trajectory um and and how that kind of reflects the um sort of the overall field so you know i I my background is a liberal arts education but really was very focused on you know biology biological sciences chemistry right a little bit of um I also you know did a lot of um art history as well as part of the, my liberal arts education but we still, don't we don't said- have
0: we don't have liberal arts in mm. Australia, I don't think so. Okay. Can you des- can you describe that a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, it's it's you know it's a tradition of you know a very sort of ra- well rounded you know um, sort of educational approach. The idea that you're going to be exposed to a variety of of disciplines as opposed to. Um, uh, some educational approaches that pretty much, you know, get you on track and you stay on that track and you don't have a lot of opportunity to delve into much else, right? So, you know, if you're going, if you're pre-med, you're, you know, you're within those, you're taking biology courses, chemistry, physics, and you're not required to, you're not expected to take anything beyond that. Um, In a liberal arts education, you know, each school varies um, differently in terms of those requirements and how they, um, shape it. Um, but where I did my undergraduate, um, you are, you are required to do, um, a number of your credits, uh, um, outside of your, ma- your, your discipline of major. Um, so, so I majored in bio, biology and minored in, in chemistry, um, in art history. Um, but I was, you know, and gladly, you know, I did, I did poetry at, you know, history, um, and that was expected that you are, you know, supposed to be this, you know, become a well-rounded um, citizen of the world. And in order to do that, you need to be exposed to the, the concepts, the thinking in, in different fields. Um, and, you know, you might say it's not for everyone. Um, I really valued it. It certainly suited who, you know, it suits who I am. Um, and I, I, I like to think, you know, I don't like to be too prescriptive but I think a lot of people would probably value you know would benefit from um, that exposure um, to to disciplines outside of what they think they're um, they're interested in and, and you and typically if you're a traditionally aged undergraduate student you're fairly young and sometimes you don't know what you want to do um, or you know what path you want to be on and so you know having that that the privilege right and I do really see it as a privilege of, of learning about You know, taking different language classes. You know, taking, um, you know, uh, different, uh, uh, classes in history or taking a a class in poetry, art history, and so forth. Um, taking a gender and sexuality class. That you, you know, how could you not but become, you know, a a a deeper thinker? Um. yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the liberal arts education. But you know, but I did, you know, I did go on that biology and chemistry track and you know, in that, in that period, I became really interested in animal behavior specifically. And so I went on to do my master's and I've always been for at least, I've always been question driven. Um, so when I did my master's at the time, the animal behavior wasn't really being applied to conservation, um, which, you know, it should especially for a younger generation, just sound. Bizarre, right? That you wouldn't be thinking about the animal's behavior when you're thinking about having to having, you know, uh, how to protect them or how to protect habitat and so forth, right? Mm. Um, but it wasn't, it, you know. And there was this call, um, this paper um, by uh, William Sutherland, you know, this clarion call for applying um, animal behavior principles to the world of conservation, right? And so I sort of took that path. And so I was really interested in understanding how an animal's movement behavior was affected when their habitat was fragmented, right? And in that, during that period, I saw, and I was working with jumping spiders. um, And so, you know, working with these jumping spiders, I saw, you know, there was an average response to my treatments. but there was still you know you could see the individual variation you can see that they weren't behaving exactly the same right they they were they were engaging with their environments differently um differently to you know to a spider right and and that you know really stuck with me and it was a really um sort of um very shifting moment um because then i you know for my when i you know in, being interested in my phd that really formed how I, how I proceeded because I very much focused on individual variation in conservation interventions, you know, and how individuals behave differently at that level, right, Um, to, uh, you know, and and I was interested in translocations because it was such a popular common conservation intervention Mm -hmm. with such a a really poor success rate.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah. Yeah, and so, so I'm trying to, so going back to your initial question of this, this sort of, if we, if we cared about, right, if we had this, um, sort of interest in the intrinsic value of animals, would we, would we then see the importance of understanding Mm -hmm. individual variation? I think this was your question, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm um, in, in science. And I, and I, I think absolutely, you know, so there's my sort of path, sort of, trying to buck the trend of what was ha- what happening in the field and also respond to you know, shifts in the field as well. But we know from not just conservation, but in, you know, in all spheres of, of humans that, you know, but even if we're just focusing on, on science, the very questions we ask, right? The very nature of our research is shaped by our values, our thinking at that time, who's doing the asking, right? Oh, we're so surprised there's female choice, you know, in, in, made, in, you know, oh, well, maybe if, if we weren't so patriarchal, if it wasn't just a bunch of men asking these questions coming from this patriarchal, imperialistic, right, history, then maybe we would have been more open um, to seeing how the world may actually work and function, right? So we've, you know, we've been very restrictive in our history and very limiting in, in, in what we, what information we have allowed to come in and, and the types of questions we ask. And so I think absolutely that has affected our approach to conservation. I mean, it's, I think there's a, you know, with conservation practice, there's a direct line, right, to co- colonialism, um, you know, to racism, Um, etc. And, you know, that we're still, we're still sort of living through that, that residue. um, And how we other, other humans, how we other, other species, um, and how we also just obliterate others as individuals. And so certainly, I think if we were coming from a more inclusive, open perspective, you know, where individuals, humans and non-humans matter, we would necessarily see that, oh, of course, individual variation and the roles that individuals Mm. have in their environment Mm. is going to have these knock-on effects, you know, this impact to how their society functions, how the health of their environment is, you know, and so forth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, when I was reading your work, I was sort of, I came to the realization that it's not just, you know, often in biology and ecology, my background, we talk about, um, you know, Ecosystem functioning and, and the community dy- dynamics of ecosystems um, being really important to, to conserve, but um, we don't really recognise that individuals within those communities help structure the, the ecosystems and right. That was right. something that I, I thought was really important and valuable, taking from your work. Um, so that, that's a thanks. Thanks so much. That we we sort of got into the the, the deep stuff really really quickly. So I'm going to take us back out a bit, and um, I just want to want to ask: can you can you describe or, or distinguish between behaviourist welfare, well-being? I mean, they're all all terms that you've used, and um, I think there's really important distinctions between those three things, um, could you describe why they, sure. differ, they differ?
2: So let's, do you mind if I take welfare and well-being first?
0: Yeah, of course.
2: Yeah, so, you know, there is this, um, discipline, you know, and I, of animal welfare science. Um, my PhD was done in the program of animal welfare science at the University of British Columbia. Um, and it's, It 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 comes from you know its its unit of analysis, right? Um, And we can you know certainly talk about what (laughs) those words, but the unit of analysis in in animal welfare science has been the individual or a small group, Um, typically a social group, a pairing, so forth, and the history of animal welfare science really though is focused, has been focused on um, those under our, our being humans sort of direct care, right? So we're focused on companion animals, domesticated animals, animals in entertainment, you know, research and so forth, you know, wild animals in captivity. Yeah. Um, and really not until what year? what were the last decade, let's say, decade, you know, plus a few, Um, did animal welfare science start to look at um, how those, the methodologies, right, focusing on individual and um, or small group could be applied in the world of conservation. Um, And so, so there, there's a history there with with that term welfare. And because, you know, maybe not because, but yeah, I think well, maybe because it's fair, right? We're talking about non-human animals that are have been instrumentalized, mm, right? Yep. Um, and they're they they're instrumentalized, they're monetized, um, utilized, etc. And so, so the welfare, right? The idea of welfare is really has been focused on um, reduction of negative states.
0: Yeah. So instrumentalized right. for our audience just means that they've been used for their value to humans. That we yeah. that we value them and we use them as instruments for our for our benefits. Whether that's um you know through entertainment or eating or other things. And yeah, right, there's
2: product- use production. It's like production for use, right? And so whether it be and you know we could talk about the relationships that we have with companion animals, but we could talk about breeding in the companion animal world, mm. right? For use production for use. Or, you know, production for food or production for a subject for research and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, welfare there really, um, and even just not the science of, of animal welfare, the animal welfare science, but animal welfare movement, the ad, advocacy, um, if we're talking about, you know, in the 1800s, starting in the UK and so forth, that's really about, you know, limiting, reducing, eliminating harm and suffering. Yeah.
0: It's a step by step approach where we go rather than say animal liberation, which many of our listeners will be um, aware of. We we talk about larger cages rather than opening right. the cages. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. So you know, so some of your listener of the listeners might know about the five freedoms, right? Which has which was important, and if you're talking about you know providing. Basic sustenance to an animal, an individual, a being. Yeah, I'm sh- that will matter to them that they have that they're not thirsty or that they have food or they're protected from the sun. And they could and so forth, but it 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 sort of stopped there. You know, like great. You know, and and we've 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 sort of eliminated, and that's we can debate that too. Um, these negative states or we're working to mitigate these negative states um and so welfare has really sort of and welfare science has really focused on that for various reasons right and largely because it's, it's dealing with those those spheres of mm-hmm. use right animals in those spheres of use so okay so they're, they're, you're already starting with a, de- a deprived environment right mm-hmm. deprivation um so how do you mitigate that deprivation and of course you, with every person you speak to they might you know some might say they're totally deprived some might say oh they're living a happy life and this is a happy cow i can taste it and how right you know so so but there's, there's an there's, assumption
0: there's an underlying <laughs> assumption that they should they, they're it's okay for them to be in that state as well right,
2: yep. right. and so but i on my stance is it's it's a deprived state right yeah. to some and you look at the individual instances and you know then look at the, the the degree of deprivation um and only in more recent decades ha- did animal welfare science start to think about positive states right how to think about and, and we could when we talk about behaviorists um behavior and behaviorism we we can talk about sort of what we are able to measure right um but yeah, so only more recently, it's not just about re- reducing or mitigating those negative states, but thinking about what is the, what are the, the psychological life of this animal, right? What is their emotional state like? And, you know, what are positive challenges that they should be experiencing and so forth? And of course, if you're, if you're not questioning or challenging the very deprived state that they're in, you're already capped, right? There's only so much you're going to be able to do. Um, again, for those individual animals, sure, Yes, it would be great to you know to to reduce those negative states, you know, reduce infection, reduce injury, um, and so forth. But you know, if we're really trying to shift things, that, that it, that's very limiting. So that gets me to well-being, right? So you know, well-being, and the reason why I and, and others prefer that term, you know, sort of the science of well-being is it, it's, it's, it's more holistic, right? It's this idea that we're talking about, you know, um, individuals with intrinsic value, with internal lives, right? Many of them are very social beings who interact with others of their species, others, you know, interspecies interactions. Um, And we're talking about that full range of emotional balance, right? So we're talking about you know, the, you know, the same as, you know, the lived experience, the embodied knowledge that we have for ourselves of emotional balance, right? So we, you know, we have, we can experience those joys, that happiness, the, you know, elations, and so forth, you know, there are lows, you know, and certainly, it would be great if, if every individual didn't really experience, um, you know, um, the lowest of lows, but there are some challenges, you know, that stressful challenges that are informing and sort of um, enriching for individuals yep. as well, right? Um, so, well-being is more about that, again, that full range, that whole balance of, of, a, of an individual's sort of embodied life.
0: And it sounds like a, a real shift from, it, it's all wrapped up in our, in our shifting um, perspective with animals, I think, because it, it's sort of welfare really seems to focus on um, physical um, physical sort of uh, right,
2: because,
0: health, whereas well being yeah, includes historical. yeah well being includes psychological, and it's not until recently that people were even um, going to admit, and many scientists still you know do anthropo denial denialism where they mm-hmm. deny uh, animals um, sort of states that they think hum- only human we can only sort of right. recognise in humans. But that's that's something that I think we'll go to a quick song, and then I'd love to hear more about like how do we how do we measure um, those the well-being in animals. um, But we'll chat about that after this really great song. And this song is um, by Nina Simone, "Ain't Got No Home," and we'll see Uh you on the other side.
1: ain't got no mother ain't got no father ain't got no brother ain't got no children ain't got no hands ain't got no
0: BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott, divestment and sanctions, BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti, on Saturday, August 29 at 7.30pm. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Amy McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr. Randa Abdel-Fattah and Ms. Fada. They'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism, and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. Boycott Divestment Sanctions BDS Australia is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au. Yes, Australia is a 3CR You're listening to Freedom of Species on our on 3CR uh, Community Radio, Radical Radio, and we've been speaking with conservation behaviorist Dr. Liv Baker. Uh, we've been talking about what is the different, like how does behaviour, um, fit into conservation, individuality in conservation and why that's important. And Liv was just telling us before the before the song what um, the difference between well-being and welfare is. And from that, I'd love to hear, Liv, um, how do we actually measure? So you talk about um, well-being being about the full sort of... Um, Valence of experiences that an animal can have, including including positive and negative experiences, um, and and their health. But how do we actually measure that? How do we measure the psychology or the the, the um, psychological state of a yeah. pig or an elephant?
2: Right, and this. So I'll just you had asked also asked me about behavior. I think you said behaviorism. Yeah. Um, the difference between and. So, um, I'm not sure if you were speaking to that the the sort of the field of behaviorism, you know, sort of a la B.F. Skinner. Um, oh yes,
0: yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Actually, you sure. could you could describe the dis- distinction there. Um, actually, um, would...
2: and, and the reason I so so, I'll just I'll just talk about I'll talk about that, and then I just want to talk about why I value behavior. Um, as a sort of as a way in as an entree to understanding another individual mm-hmm. um, So but it, but the reason I I asked if you wanted to talk about behaviorism because that really that sort of that the history of that and the impact of that really limited the kinds of questions we we, mm-hmm. we are asking today um, and so so it really had to do with sort, and and it's associated with something called positivism. Right, this idea is we can only it's only we can only know something if we can measure it, right? And so if we can't if we can't observe it, we can't measure it. Then we, it sort of it left the <laughs> the minds of the researchers. And so therefore, even though there was a history in the the late eighteen hundreds, the early nineteen hundreds to study things like emotion or what they were calling temperament at mm-hmm. the time. Um, that sort of went away with behaviorism in the post-World War II era, um, because again, it's not really observable, and so therefore we can't uh, properly measure it. And so then it led to, you know, then, you know, so thinking about emotions in other animals, like, forget it, right? So, so, but unfortunately what happened was, although early on they weren't saying these things didn't exist, right? It was more like we can't measure it, there beca- they, the two became equal, mm, yeah. in, you know, as things moved along, right? And so it wasn't until, you know, speaking of like individual variation, for example, personality, it wasn't really until like the late 1990s, yeah. you, typically with um, Sam Gosling's work, he's a psychologist out of, of the University of Austin, Texas, um, in the US, he sort of helped bring back animal personality um, studies largely to, to serve our understanding of human personality, but there are plenty of us who were like, Let's, we can study this for the, the benefit of, of non-human animals as well. Um, so we're still, again, talking about this sort of residue that we're trying to clean out and work through. You know, that's another thing is you know this fight that, no, you can't measure that. You can't say an animal has emotions or it, this psychological state um there's still you know so we're still bucking up against that and I would say the other historical um artifact that in conservation that we're that we're working through is um is the paper by Michael Soule so Michael Soule is considered like the grandfather of um of conservation biology so he wrote a paper what is conservation biology in I think it was published in 85 or 86
0: was 85 yeah
2: 85, yeah. And so he, maybe your readers are familiar with this from like past conversations, past guests, but in it, he had, you know, he talked about, you know, conservation biology being multidisciplinary, right? And really, and he had a pie chart in it, um, referring to the different disciplines that would help inform conservation biology, right? The science of conservation, And this goes to your point about um, even welfare being um, about physical or biological health, um, because in it, he included veterinary medicine or veterinary science. But again, this was in 1986, animal welfare science had been around, you know, as a full fledged discipline for decades at this point. And he made a point in the paper of excluding animal welfare, you know, and what's, what I find unfortunate about it was that, he, he, was, they were, he was conflating, he wasn't, he wasn't thinking about animal welfare as a science for one thing and the methodologies that could actually be useful to conservation. He was seeing animal welfare as a political movement and there was a, also a conflation with animal welfare and animal rights. So, he, so it was completely dismissed and that set the path forward in conservation to dismiss very vocally, animal welfare, individuals, and so forth, right? And it really also helped perpetuate the, because he included veterinary medicine, that what welfare is, is a physical state. It's a biological state, right? Um,
0: he even uses a and- term pot like that, um, th- that, thinking about individual animals within conservation or, or animal um, things in conservation is a political position and not he uses the term political and yeah it's it's and
2: really you know it's one of those you know i think that's a great point adam that he because conservation is fundamentally a political practice absolutely right and that yes it is you know it, it relies on scientific knowledge to help um advocate for certain practices or the other, but it is completely shaped, driven by human values. Right. Ud- utter, right, And so ultimately and utterly political. And so there's, you know, there's, un- you know, and I, I just want to say to Michael, so like he, he passed recently um, and he was, he retracted that those sentiments um, and he, was, he did. Um, and um, I, I'm not going to, you know, I didn't speak directly with him, um, so I, I, I can't quote him, but I know very much that um, he did retract that and was saddened by the the, the path that conservation um, biology had taken as a result of that. Mm. Yeah.
0: And
2: yeah, so, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, go
0: ahead. No, 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 you continue, please.
2: Well, I was trying to get to your question that I think I, um, oh, how do we measure? Right. So this mm-hmm. whole, you know, so again, sort of linking these things together, uh, you know, in terms of being denied, you know, the the existence of emotions or a psychological state in animals. And so then, you know, there, and this is, you know, animal welfare science. And there's a, there's a lot of fair criticism that can be levied at, at that field, you know, in terms of, um, if, especially if you're interested in abolition or um, freedom from captivity, incarceration, and so forth. You might say that animal welfare science and some scientists have, have perpetuated right, that instrumentalization. Yeah. Um, however, you, know, you can also say that there have been these really remarkable methodologies that have been developed to really try and understand animals at the individual level. Um, and I would say that the, the methodologies, um, that I think might best, at least at this moment, help us, you know, inform us about the psycho- psychological state of animals have really come from that world, um, and also from the world of behavior. And so I had sort of foreshadowed why I wanted to talk about, um, uh, why I value behavior, um, so much. And, and one, it's not invasive. That's the, that's probably primary is that, um, you, you know, you can do it, um, at a distance, you can do it without having to handle or, um, interfere with an animal. And, um, and so, but, you know, behavior, especially when you, when you pay attention and, and this is, you know, really, Brought forth by Jane Goodall's work, you know her na- narrative work with chimpanzees. Um, when you really pay attention and you get to know individuals, right? You you see all of the nuance, um, not just you know within a species or within a group, but you know at that individual level. And um, you know one of the one of the examples. I won't go into like heavy detail with it, but there's an example of. Um, you know, trying to understand the emotion, this the the level of aversion to um, a, a treatment in sheep, and so some researchers looked at um, well, the researchers looked at physiological measures, so measures of like the stress hormone, like cortisol, for example, and behavioral measures. And there were three different treatments that were increasingly well potential well i don't want to say increasingly aversive but they had different levels of interference I would say with with the animal and with the with the stress hormone measure there was a spike ac- you know across the treatments but there but it wasn't sensitive sensitive enough to pick up on you know if there was a um, if one treatment was more or less aversive or bothersome than the mm. other, but you could pick up on that based on the behavioral analysis. Mm. And, you know, that's not, al- that's not always true right there. You know, I, I, I think there are, you know, reasons and instances where, you know, different types of behavior are, are really important and they provide information that maybe behavior can't. But I, I just, I think that really is, a, is just like a really good example that if we're paying attention to those things, you know, a be, you know an individual is going to, to reveal, to share how they're feeling about something. Um, and so the ways we can, you know, sort of measure psychological state, um, there are very specific ways, you know, that, you know, if you're, if you're very directly trying to do it, but they, but these largely... Have been developed in with animals that are controlled in some way. So, like cognitive bias tests, I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with that at all. It's been done, you know, with humans. You know, it's part of human psych psychology, um, and and then adapted for non-human animals. So, you know, you can essentially, you know, how is this individual feeling, right, um, about something based on their interpretation of what would otherwise be a neutral event. Right. And so if they're in a, if they're feeling, and, you know, again, I always, I always stress in us humans to use our embodied knowledge to understand this and other animals, right. We do this all the time. You know, we, we might be, you know, just having a lousy day about something and, you know, dinner then tastes terrible. You know, a dinner that maybe we had a great day and that dinner is like the best dinner you ever had, right. The best spaghetti you've ever had. Um, and so we, we interpret, uh, uh, you know, what would otherwise be a neutral event differently based on our, you know, the, the psychological state that we're coming to it with. Mm. And so, um, the cognitive bias has been used, you know, um, to look at, um, to assess, you know, how does a cow, you know, um, feel about a milking procedure or a type of handling procedure and so forth or transportation, you know, those sorts of things. Um, so that's one way. But, you know, again, these are usually it requires a training period and so forth. And while I think, re- you know, very valuable, I'm more interested in, in trying to th- think about psychological state without having to, again, be in a captive setting with, with, um, with these animals, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, not surprisingly, and your listeners, I'm sure, are well aware that most of the data we have you know, comes from captive settings because it's convenient. Mm. Um, and I think you know we now need to, and I think some people are really doing some some great things of how to gather information about animals um, outside of those spheres, right? So in the wild, you know, where they're actually free living, and there yeah. there are limits to that. Absolutely. That's okay. You know, I think we need to be okay with the the limitations, the constraints, like that, that should be a welcome and fair constraint that I oh, I can't have a controlled experiment, you know, because these animals are free living. You know? Yeah, um, there's a,
0: there, there's a, um we'll go through a break in a, in just a moment, and then I'd love to hear more about, um, about your work with elephants and what mm-hmm. you're doing in this space, but I wanted to sort of um, preface that with a with a um, a bit of research that a, f- a friend who's just finished up at S- Smithsonian, he's been working with. Um, elephants in Myanmar and they, he does tracking work so they go out they find elephants it's a whole in fact we spoke to him last year if people are interested in learning more about elephants in Myanmar and the difficulty they go through with poaching and um, yeah. community community um, sort of conflict but yeah,
2: who that right?
0: um, John John McAvoy was his name oh, yep. um, mm-hmm. and so they were they were monitoring um, so they go out find find some elephants and put put colours on them to track them and they got they developed a model. So they had a whole bunch of elephants with um, tracking data. They developed a model about where they would expect elephants to move if Mm -hmm. if they were to if they were to travel. And they wanted to use this model, a behavior model. So they're just looking at behavior. This is movement through landscape. They wanted to look at this model when um, for, for elephants that were being um, relocated because they were having conflict with the community, they'd take them, you know, 50 to 100 Ks away and mm-hmm. they'd drop them off. And then sort of within a day, like, so humans were saying, this is good habitat for elephants. We'll leave these elephants here. It's an elephant sanctuary, beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And within like a day, these elephants would be moving back to their home location um, and not following where... The model would expect through, through vegetation they were going via, um, via communities, human communities, along roads um, and it just sort of it speaks to that, that example really highlighted to me that we sometimes look at animals and see what we expect, I think. And we're like, surely they'll want to go through the the forest, stay away from humans, all that sort of jazz. But in reality, there's a whole lot more going on. There's a history that John suggested that maybe these elephants are 50, 60 years old. They might have... Traveled through these locations and have a memory of where they've been previously, or maybe there's a there's a connection um, between humans and elephants that we're not understanding. That's a little bit deeper, um, and they're going to those communities because there's resources there. They they you know they've got plenty of food to get on their travel, um, and it just sort of there's something deeper going on that we're not capturing and we're not putting into our models. And okay. I think. The work that you're doing, I I, I hope, um, and and this this animal welfare, uh, animal well-being and behaviour work that sort of investigates the inner lives of animals sort of gets us beyond just this mechanistic um, understanding of animals and and through behaviour. But before we talk about that and your fantastic work on elephants, um, we'll listen to a fantastic song, I must say, Under Pressure by Queen
1: and David Bowman. Pushing down on me Pressing down on you No man has more Under pressure The brings you filled and dry Switch your family in two Push people on streets Eat it up, eat it up It's the terror of knowing what this world is about
0: Back to 3CR, community radio, Radical Radio, you're listening to Freedom of Species, and we've been having a fantastic chat with Dr. Liv Baker, all about animal behaviour, conservation behaviour, animal wellbeing, and all things related uh, around conservation and the importance of individuality in conservation. Um, Liv was just telling us about uh, how we might measure behaviour in individuals and animals, especially outside of controlled environments in a lab or, or um, and how we might measure behaviour out in the wild. Uh, and Liv, Liv is research director with the <laughs> Mahouts, Mahouts, Mahouts Elephant Foundation. And I'd love to hear more about that work, Liv. And uh, you've recently written about rewilding um, Asian elephants in connection with Mahouts culture or tradition mm-hmm. i'd love to hear more about that some of the issues with that but but how you think this um, this might help animal uh, help help elephants and how does animal behavior in um, sort of influence that decision influence sort of your understanding of that that idea
2: sure thank you um, yeah so I work with Mahout's elephant Foundation. Um, Co-founded by Sarah and Felix Lane, um, they're from the UK, um, so it's a UK charity, but also a, a Thai charity as well. At this at this point, um, and they they did something really remarkable and something you don't often see in these sort of these sorts of initiatives that are um, focused on the protection of other beings, such as elephants, in that they really. St- we're striving to set up a collaboration, um, whereas a lot of these initiatives, which you and your listeners are likely familiar with, um, these initiatives usually descend oops sorry, descend on a place um, and sort of um, uh, enforce a way of uh, approaching um, a, 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 a strategy. Um, And they usually don't, you know, they're not sustainable, um, because they're, you know, again, it it sort of followed those historically followed that sort of patriarchal paternalistic, you know, um, approach that conservation still is, is, uh, uh, has to come to, but we're, we're striving to get away from that. Um, but but Mukut's Ele- Elephant Foundation from the very beginning was about collaboration. That um, if we're going if if we're really going to make a change for these Asian elephants that are part of in this case part of the um, elephant tourism industry, we're going to get them out of that world into a protected state. Then we have to work with um, uh, work with the elephants, but also c- and collaborate with with other interested people, right? And the, the people that hold interest are those that own elephants, right? So there's a long history of ownership, elephant ownership. Um, and Karen um, people um, in, and you've mentioned Myanmar, so see, you know, the Karen state, and they have that history too. And it, we see that in, in Thailand as well um so they have you know hundreds of years history of, of elephant ownership and you know if i i talk about in the paper with my co-author the violent history that that exists in, in that um, but what we're also talking about is that there and there's a there's a also um r- what we're seeing is re- relationships among these these humans and their elephants and and what and relationships we're seeing of in some cases real reciprocity, um, and so while we're not ignoring any sort of violence that has existed or might exist with still within the system, what we're also saying is that there there is this um, relationship of positivity that that does exist as well. And what if we were to really um, focus on that and use that as a model moving forward to help protect elephant, Asian elephants in this case. Yep. And so part of it is working with constraints that exist, that these are owned elephants um, and also working with the reality that many of these mahouts, so a mahout, the term itself is a traditional elephant keeper and like any professional term, right? The level of professional professionalism, right? Varies along a continuum, right? So you hear physician; it, it could be the best physician you've ever met. It could be the worst physician, right? So just because it, it you you carry that that name, it doesn't necessarily mean you know that you're you're an exemplar of mm. the profession. Um, the mahouts we work with, though, we think are exemplars of this profession, um, and so and they have this amazing situated knowledge. About the elephants, the history of elephants, the elephants that they know very well, about um, the the habitat of elephants and so forth, and so we we think it's you know vital that we're in collaboration you know with with the elephants with um, with um, and with the again those the interested people and and being the mahouts, their families and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, and trying to, you know, develop a a true collaboration. And a true collaboration, of course, means that there's going to be compromise, Um, but it also means that there's a a development of understanding as well. And what's also really important to understand is that, you know, we, you know, different cultures have different knowledge practices and different knowledge production, right? So we come to our, our knowledge in different ways and you know, Western centric organizations, right? Have a tendency to dismiss the knowledge practices and productions of different cultures. Um, and at the same time, not really putting a mirror up to the, the problems, what is problematic with how we develop our own right knowledge, right? And the violence in our own knowledge production. If you think about how we, you know, the the vast knowledge about animals that we have now, the majority of it comes from a very violent history, right? That we have yet to really reckon with. Um, And so, but anyway, that's my rambling way of getting back to the fact that Muhus Elephant Foundation really its intention was collaboration, right? With the goal of Asian elephant protection and conservation. And so my role as research director, is I'm really interested in, in understanding sort of the, the lives of these elephants that have in some cases, you know, been rescued from the elephant tourism world or prevented from ever gone into the elephant tourism world in some cases, right? So, um, but to understand what their lives are like as individuals, as social beings on a day-to-day basis, right? So, in some cases, we're not reinventing the wheel at all. It's not like we're you you know we're, so I'm in some cases using very traditional behavioral methodologies, like trying to understand just how they're spending their day, mm. right? At, you know, as a family group, as an individual, you know, how much you know, where do they move? What plants do they like? Um, who they're spending their time with, um, and so forth, right? That's insight into who these animals are, you know. And then you know from with that also see, okay, well, how does this compare? How does this information compare to what we know about wild, you know, quote, unquote, wild Asian elephants? Um, And how does it compare to captive Asian elephants, both in the tourism industry, in zoos and so forth? Um, And that's, you know, really um, sort of important information. and. You know, I'm. We're also interested. So, so there's like that basic behavioral data from from that standpoint. Um, we're also doing um, some spatial use um, sort of analysis. We're we're working with a different system, not the traditional GPS collar, mm. yeah. um, because I'm not a big fan of yeah. of GPS collars. So we're working with more of a necklace that we're gonna be piloting. Um, which will be tricky because we're, it's a dense, you know, it's a dense habitat, um, which makes grabbing signals a little bit difficult, but you know, we're again, a welcome constraint. Um, And so, um, so I think of these, these elephants as being rewilded. They're living in native um, habitat. And, you know, there's been a lot of pushback to my use of the term rewilded because they're still under the, some people, you know, um, the traditional sense of rewilding is is really sort of a, an ecological, from an ecological perspective, right? And and if you were to have a, full, a, a rewilded um, system, right, humans would, there would be very little need for humans. In this particular case... You know, there's still this. Re- we're not. We're not talking about severing the relationship that these elephants have with with the mahouts, with the elephant guardians. Mm. Um. And so, so I'm, and my colleagues are really thinking about rewilding again, not just as this um, an ecological phenomenon, but also a psychological phenomenon. And I think it's that a, gets to
0: yeah. It's yeah, it's and really, i think that, Oh, sorry. Go
2: ahead. <laughs> no, I was just saying it refers back to when you were talking about the. My interest in the interior lives of Mm. of animals, right? So seeing rewilding as this psychological phenomenon, seeing it from their perspective.
0: And I I really, it's really interesting this, this new like your take on rewilding, it sort of speaks to another um, contentious sort of debate within conservation and ecology, which is humans' role in ecosystems. And that, you know, this debate, are we totally outside of ecosystems? Are we actually part of ecosystems? Um, and how we shape ecosystems? How does that work in, in a way that is, that is not um, domineering and exploitative, but rather what 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 i think is still an open question I, and hopefully we're we're almost we're, we're pretty much out of time so we'll have to wrap up but maybe we can book in another um chat sometime in the future to talk more about sure, what you're finding weird. with the mahouts but i think the open question is can can we um create rewilding where we have these human animal um, communities where the animals are not being exploited and i think if we can then of course, can we not, like, isn't, wouldn't it be lovely to live in multi-species communities where um, we're all considered? Um, Right. But yeah, we're going to have to wrap it up there because we're right on time. Um, So thank you so much, Liv, for that really excellent chat. I really enjoyed that. Um, (laughs) Thanks for for listening, everyone. You've been listening to Freedom of Species and we've been speaking with Dr. Liv Baker, a conservation behaviourist. Um, if you have any feedback for the show then get in get in touch on info at freedom dot or via facebook or twitter um, at foz radio and we'll be here next week again at one to two on sunday so tune in on 855 am in melbourne or stream or we're streamed live via the 3cr website or you can just um, get the podcast wherever you get podcasts. And make sure you stay tuned for Encyclopedia, all things drug policy and um, all that sort of good stuff. So see you next week.
2: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.